0: The Magic Book Club, with Benson's for Beds. Hello, welcome along to the Magic Book Club podcast. My name's Tom Price, and this is the show that takes a deeper look into why our favourite authors put pen to paper or fingertips to keyboard. On this week's episode, we're going to be catching up with the amazing writer, editor and fashion director Kenya Hunt for a really fascinating, in-depth interview. And I'm going to be talking to not only one of my favourite musicians, but also a very, very hilarious man indeed. James Blunt is going to be chatting to us about being a Twitter legend. Uh, And as always, we're going to be checking in with some of your favourite authors to find out just what inspires them to write the books that we love so much. So without further ado, first up, we're joined by debut author Kenya Hunt. Welcome to the Magic Book Club podcast.
1: Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Good. I'm really glad you're here. Um, We love your book. We'll get onto that in a sec. First of all, though, uh, the kind of question we have to begin with, really, the sort of therapy question, how are you? How is your lockdown?
1: So far, so good. I mean, I have to say lockdown... Point two, uh, 2.0 feels much less restrictive than the first, I think, because schools are open and that makes all the difference in the world. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's OK. It's, it's amazing how quickly we can adapt to, to things, particularly a year as strange as this one has been.
0: Yes, yes, I couldn't agree more. It's like the second lockdown, we're like, I've done the rehearsal for this one. I know how to do this. Yeah, thing. totally. Um, and, until, and you say, you, you're absolutely right, because the kids are in school. My youngest is in a bubble that's just been burst, so he's been home for two weeks. And it's felt very oh, lockdown no. 1.0, let me tell you.
1: Oh, that's intense.
0: Anyway, uh, are you managing to get much writing done while this is going on?
1: Well, it's writing has been the hardest thing um, because, you know, I work for... Grazia and write, you know, for my day job in addition to editing. And I, I honestly, it's so tricky to find time to write because the days are so long and exhausting still because I mean, my, the playgroups, all the normal clubs my kids would be involved in are, are largely closed and this lockdown. So then they're here. It's just, it's hard for me to ring fence the dedicated time I would have normally and and find a quiet space in which to write. But I'm figuring it out. I feel like it could be worse. So I I don't want to complain. But yeah, I'm just trying to muddle through as best I can.
0: I know that feeling of you think oh you know I am I'm lucky to have this this and this but at the same time it, you, you're okay to have a little wine every now and again it's okay to complain every now and again uh, my uh my wife yeah tends to write at the kitchen table with kids running around her that is no way to write is it
1: it's no way to write yeah I've been on deadline where I've had to just turn things around really quickly and I've had like my toddler my two-year-old yelling at me and it, it's hard I mean it's rough so I mean I'm just trying to sort of get through it the best I can. I feel like I need to just put that on a t-shirt, like that has very much been my mantra this year. I'm just trying to get through, make it through as best I can. All I can do is the best I can do.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so so tell us what inspired you to make this uh, this leap from from writing for publications, and obviously this is still your, your full-time job. Uh, I mean, you, you're a parent, you've got your writing yeah. for, for Grazia. And now you are, you know, you're putting yourself out there in book form as well. What made you want to do that?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I had been wanting to write about my experiences as a, you know, as an American expat, as a black American woman expat, and in a time in which we were seeing black women become increasingly and increasingly visible uh, on the world stage, you know, over the past, you know, X number of years, I'd say maybe five to 10 years. And so I just wanted to, I felt compelled to, to just write about it in longer form because I could have just done it the way I always do via, you know, an article for one publication or another, but I felt like there was, I wanted to to take some extra words and extra time with it. And so, yeah, I, I mean, it, the germ of the book, you know, I started exploring that during my maternity leave and that, that I mean, I have two boys and both mat leaves were a time of real reflection And thought for me and like, you know, reassessment and things like that. And so, yeah, it was around sort of the midway point that I just decided, like, I wanted to just really, really sort of dig into this. And I had to talk about it with my agent, Kate. And then things just moved really quickly from there. And the experience of writing it also was quite quick, Mm -hmm. even though so much has changed so radically. Um, So I would have never imagined that this year would have unfolded as it has, because a lot of the talking points in the book had become, you know, really the book Dove's Tales really nicely and really closely with some of the biggest talking points of the year in a way that I would have never anticipated.
0: Yes, yes. Well, of course, there's, there's stuff here about um, Donald Trump. He's, I remember that name vaguely, but he's yesterday's man now since the book is out. Come- <laughs> he's gone. He's gone, Kenya.
1: I mean, he's gone. He's oh, Well, he's very much yesterday's and today's news because, he, because he's very much not going quietly into the night. Um, but I think also when you look at the role that black women played in getting Biden, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris into office, you know, was, and Kamala Harris also becoming such an incredible first is the first woman vice president, but also the first uh, black uh, woman and in, um, an in Indian uh, woman vice president as well. Like so many firsts. So I think that's also, you know, something that's um yeah i mean that really sort of connects really nicely with the book but i mean but trump oh man i have the feeling we'll still be talking about him for years to come sadly
0: yes i think he might be right i think he might be right he's holding himself up isn't he and also there's yes. already talks starting to grow about 2024 but let's not get distracted
1: by trump I I too many other people are
0: talking about trump right now kenya i think our job is to
1: talk i agree about let's keep it a trump b zone <laughs>
0: Um, I,
1: I love Girl. It's a
0: fantastic book. It's a series of episodes. Give, give us, give us the quick sell. Tell us what this book is is in in a
1: nutshell. Uh, so the book is very much, you know, it's a love letter to black women and an exploration of how we show up and advocate for ourselves in a world that oftentimes does not. But also, I think it's a book that can really, I hope, strikes a chord with anyone, um, particularly women of all backgrounds, because I think it speaks to a lot of universal pursuits, particularly like a search for purpose in a world that is rapidly, rapidly changing. And also it speaks to certain things like how we um, define ourselves um, against the backdrop of social media as well.
0: Yes, the social media thing. I mean, that has, that has defined the last, I mean, certainly maybe not the decade, but the last the last five or six years have been so defined by social media. And you write beautifully
1: about that. Thank you. I mean, I think it's, re- you know, it's a really interesting time because, I mean, for when I was growing up, it was very much, you know, the, the discussion about ma- magazines and what we saw on television was very much a thing and how that could create... Sort of quite narrow perceptions of um or ideas of how we should be and and how how our lives can look as as women but specifically as black women and then now, I think when you look at social media i you know I feel like social media has become such a hugely pivotal force in our lives. um you know it's how we it's an extension of ourselves in a way like we put we put out there we what we want. To people to see, but also it, it becomes a conduit for a connection, especially in lockdown, seeing the way that we connect with one another, but also the way that we've used these tools to shift culture. I mean, looking at the social justice movement of the past year and the Black Lives Matter movement and how social media was so integral to the expansion of that um, and the gains that they were able to make and then again you know looking at that movement and the fact that you had three black women who founded it and who were you know very much powering it um, so yeah I think social media is a really key piece of the story also because the time period that I'm looking back on um, it coincides with the the rise of, of social media because I feel like when I I moved here just as, You know, um, Instagram, Twitter and Instagram and all those things were really, really becoming a thing and then just accelerating at a really fast clip. And so, yes, social media is a really big part of that story.
0: Yes, and this is a good tonic to it, a really good tonic to it. Because I think a lot of people at the moment are have got it in for social media and they say how addictive it is and all these uh, things about it. But I think what's great about yes. what you've just been saying is it, it's power to, for good is also there and we need to celebrate that. And that's that's important.
1: Yeah, that's it. I don't know if you saw the documentary, The Social Dilemma. I watched that and I was terrified. I mean, it is, yes. I mean, it's definitely, you know, the social media, I mean, it's a lot, there's a lot of bad and a lot of good happening You know, a lot of bad things obviously have come out of it. But I think for people like me, you know, if you move someplace and you don't know anyone else, or you you feel like you're in environments where you're kind of the only, or you're you're feeling a certain degree of isolation, it can be quite powerful in that way for just connecting, like finding your tribe um, when it's taking you a little bit longer to do so in real life. For instance, when I think back on my earliest days earliest years here i mean social media twitter i was able to really connect with people and some of my closest friends here to this day are people who i just met on twitter funnily enough it's so weird that isn't it it's so much it's, yeah the
0: internet <laughs> dating to the next level it's amazing
1: i know yeah totally
0: and um, one of the things that i find really interesting uh, you talked about um You, again, write beautifully about uh, your childhood and about hair. Now, this is a big deal for women of color. And I had no idea about this until um, I was watching uh, I May Destroy You. And that was when my, you know, I'll talk at length about my workness and all these things have happened to me in the last five, ten years where I've just had these realizations. And you Mm. talk about hair and you talk about how how your sense of self comes from how the media portrays um, black people. And now when you talk about social media, at least this is an opportunity to, to reclaim that and take control of that narrative. And you write about that fantastically.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, there's um, two women who, you know, are, are women I really admire and who I consider, you know, dear friends as well. There's Funami Fato and Freddie Harrell, who, can, who have contributed to the book, and they are quite prominent voices in the beauty space in particular, so Fumi Feto is a contributing editor to British Vogue and Freddie Harrell is quite a prominent early generation influencer with a, really, a very sizable following on social media and an entrepreneur. She's launching a new uh, line called Rad Swan um, this week. And with Freddie in particular, you know, I found her story really quite fascinating because she's so known for having this incredible joy um, and this joyful presence on social media that women gravitate towards from all over the world, but also, she, also she became quite known for her hair, which was you know, this um, very luscious looking afro. You know, she wears it in all different kinds of ways, and so essentially, um, it, you know, it turned out that a lot of the hair that she was wearing, where she was ex- experimenting with natural wigs and extensions and things like that and um and she's launching that that's her business now essentially but she went through a real journey you know and sort of basically kind of grew into um you know her relationship with her hair was ever evolving um and she's had this sort of ever-growing deepening sort of love for her hair with time and i thought her story was really quite powerful because she speaks to her childhood growing up um you know, in Europe and then seeing these images coming out of America where you'd see pop stars like women like Aliyah you know, these women who had these perms, like their hair permed straight and these sort of long flowing tresses or extensions and things. And and that sort of impacting how she viewed herself or how she wanted to look. And uh, all of this, you know, she writes and explores all of the different ways in which she experimented with her hair, everything from, you know, braids and cornrows to the perms, and she kind of really walks us through sort of all of the incoming and outgoing trends in black hair care, but also how, you know, her own perception of herself evolved within. Um, And also the social currency that came out of it as well. Like there was a period where she was in school and she was braiding other girls' hair and she became like the person they all went to to go and get their hair braided. And there was like a cool factor associated with that. And then other periods where she just felt quite out of place because she was going to um a very um homogeneous school like the student body was overwhelmingly predominantly white and so she was one of like a handful of black students there and also that feeling of just not being not fitting in you know and that sort of thing and also how her hair could contribute to that so i thought her experience just really spoke very nicely to this idea of really defining ourselves for who we are growing into that That place, that wisdom that comes with age. Sometimes, you know, just that um, conviction to just, you know, not receive those images that we are met with um, and internalize them in quite the same way, and just really making the decision to sort of define ourselves for who we are, um, rather than allowing anyone else to do so.
0: Exactly. It's a great universal message. I and mean, this book is full of those things. Um, I, I must talk briefly about the woke thing. Because I've, I've been really annoyed recently how woke has become an insult. And things like, again, this is the, this <sighs> the uh, Twitter thing. Uh, you know, virtue, virtue signaling is seen as an insult. And I'm like, uh, if do you virtue signaling? I'm still, like, that's just a way of saying a nice thing. You're, you, people who are trying to change stuff, being woke, being progressive, trying to change how things are perceived, are being cut down with this term. Um, so I was interested to say that, see that you don't like the term woke. Now, why why is that exactly? Take us through it. Because I was I was fascinated about the the way it's been appropriated from an Erika Badu song as well. That was
1: interesting. Yeah. So uh, basically, the, the term woke, I love the meaning of it. Um, and, you know, I, I use the term woke. I mean, I, I don't really have any issues with it that specifically. It's more so the way it's been. I think it's just really fascinating the journey um, that it's, you know, Gone down, but I, I, the biggest issue I have is the way that people use it. And so I think it's gone through such a, um, so many changes and it's weaponized a, 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 an awful lot, like you mentioned. Um, and then people can use it, you know, it's become a punchline, it's become a pejorative term, it's, you know, it's become this very sort of earnest thing. And so it's just I feel like the meaning of it, the original meaning of it has gotten lost. And then it's also become a weird kind of badge of honor as well that people can wield in certain ways. And so I just feel like because of it and this just happens with a lot of terms in the age and this age of social media, like it goes through a journey where, you know, it starts out as this very sort of niche subcultural thing and then it reaches the mainstream and then it spirals and spirals and becomes something else that's bigger than what it was and then we just don't even know what we're talking about anymore. And you find that with certain buzzwords and I feel like woke is very much those, I feel like it's very much a word for this age. And so with me, I very much identify with its original meaning and that's just this awareness of you know, just awareness of, you know, inequality in any area. But going back to your additional, your earlier point about virtue signaling, I do get tickled by that because, um, you know, the virtual signal can be a thing. I mean, I even sometimes roll my eyes at it. But on the other hand, I'm amused because I just think we probably could use more of that. I mean, a virtue signal, (laughs) honestly, when you look at where we are currently, like, I mean, when you scroll through, I mean, these Twitter feeds and these Instagram feeds I mean, these feeds can be filled with so much, like, you know, so much hate out there that I'm just like, you know what? I will take a virtue signal any day. Like, give me more of that. I mean, I just don't think it's, yes. um, uh, but I get it. I mean, it can just come off as being so earnest. And I think people can react against that um, in a, you know, in a particular kind of way. It could just seem very like, you know, this very kind of earnest do-gooder thing. But when you look at how high the stakes have been this year, like when you look at the news cycle, I mean, it's really intense. So, I mean, I think we could, it's not such a bad thing to have you know, a virtue signal or two or three or yeah. 10,000 out there.
0: <laughs> I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of my virtue virtue signaling. Yes, person. me I, too. You just, see, you just see how much abuse someone like, you know, especially when someone, I don't know, Gary Lineker or someone, who is, you know, he's trying to be an ally to a lot of people. He's, he's trying to do the right thing. And the abuse that he gets online and social media uh, and in large chunks of the press, you just think that yeah. the way they do it is so... Determinedly trying not to stop him, they're trying to stop the agenda, and they're using attacks yeah. on him as a way of doing that. And that winds me up.
1: Yeah, same. I completely agree. So
0: this book, girl, um, it's out now.
1: Uh, what's what's the plan? What's next,
0: uh, writing-wise for you, Kenya?
1: Well, I guess what's next is finding time to write. I have to figure out. I mean, yeah, the good thing is, on. you know, the year is drawing to a close, and I have time. I you know have time off, and so I'm looking forward to just taking a beat because it's been quite intense. Um, you know, the book comes out the 26th of November here in the UK, and then it comes out in the States two weeks later. So I'm in the, the midst of promoting it on both sides of the Atlantic, which is fun, but also quite intense. So I'm looking forward to just ha- taking a moment to just breathe a bit and recover from this year, this in and out of your lo- lockdown year, because it's been so much. Yeah. And then, yeah, I would love to get back into writing. I just have to figure out what what that is and how that will look. I'm a big, avid, I'm a big believer in journaling and I'm, a, you know, a very avid journaler And the, I like to, you know, take time late at night or early in the morning to put pen to paper, like old fashioned paper <laughs> um, and just imagine. sort of write out my th- what, so thoughts, little. I know, imagine, I know, totally. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like to just sort of like write out my thoughts about certain things, um, you know, whether it be you know an article that I read or you know a bigger sort of a more sort of niche piece that I encountered online or a a bigger sort of cultural shift or moment or just something that happened in my day-to-day and that's you know the book very much came out of a lot of old journal entries and I'm I'm looking forward to just finding some time to start journaling again because it's been hard to even do that
0: yes absolutely I can imagine I can imagine it's a great it's a great read girl and it takes on thank you you. your, your writing about it's a historical time that we're living through i know that's a trite thing to say and everyone's saying that at the moment but you write about yeah. it with such warmth and wisdom and personality it's a it's a great read and i wouldn't want anyone put off by the idea when it's described here as an essay as essays and things like that and sometimes people can feel that that's somehow a bit dry or not for them and i think uh, people should get yeah. over that because it's 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 great writing i really enjoyed it tremendously what do your friends and family on the other side of the pond make of you coming over here and building this this british life that you've got
1: They've been really supportive I mean it's it's been it's been quite mixed. I mean my parents are just incredibly supportive no matter what I do although they I mean I think this lockdown has really intensified the distance and so they're you know they were missing each other so I think there is you know for my parents there's that certain, Um, you know, they they make the comments now like, oh, it'll be so great when you uh, when you guys finally come back home and all of that. So there's my parents are really supportive of the fact that we've built a life here. But now that we my husband and I have children, you know, we had kids here. So now they're definitely, you know, making it very clear and known that they're keen, very keen to spend more time with their grandkids. And then my friends, you know, it depends on who's president, like who's been in office. So when we moved here, the Obamas were in office, and it was just this incredible time. I and mean, there was so much love and. Goodwill towards America. But also just there was there were so many fun things happening in states. So so many friends of mine were like getting invited to parties at the White House and taking their photo ops and things. And I would just feel FOMO USA. and they would be like, I, know, I was here. They were like, you got to come back, you know, come back, come back. Um, but now and then in the Trump years, they were all like, stay there, stay there. Don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> so it's changed. But now we'll see how things look, you know, during the Biden Kamala chapter
0: yes absolutely i think that's hilarious that obama won and you're like right i'm gonna to go to a rainy little island all the best it's fascinating. <laughs> do, you, do you get um, do you, write, you do write about this do you get fed up with sort of the ambassadorial nature of being a uh, american woman of color living in in britain where people are like well you know i could talk to you about kamala for example or i could talk to you about trump and america or, or the experience of being a black person do you, does that does that tire you
1: Well, sometimes it does. I mean, at first I found it quite amusing and then it became quite exhausting. Now I just take it, you know, it depends on the line of questioning and how it's being asked. And if the conversation is stimulating enough, then I will, you know, happily engage in it. Other times it just gets a bit quite old answering the same questions. Which city do you like better, New York or London? Like there's very, there's certain basic questions that every American expat yeah. encounters and those sorts of things so those can definitely get a bit you know that those get boring very fast well
0: i was gonna say which city do you like better new york no okay fine cross that, out. Cross that out. <laughs> So uh, is it weird now being over here, your kids presumably have British accents, do you find that strange?
1: It is, it's strange and it's such a giggle because my eight-year-old, his new favourite thing to do is to make fun of my accent. So he's always, he's very British and he's always mimicking my accent so it's really strange to hear my American accent through his eyes. I grew up in the South. My husband did not. He grew up in the Northeast. So I guess between the two of us, I guess my accent is a bit stronger, but I'm the one of the two of us who's always being made fun of around here. So it is very funny for me. And yeah, I mean, I, yeah, oftentimes it's just, I'll hear them pronounce things because my two-year-old is now talking a lot and I'm just shocked by how British they sound or we'll say the ABCs. And every time they say Z at the end, I'm like, what is that? (laughs) <laughs> we need to move back. Who that's are so you,
0: people? <laughs> um, uh, Kenya, you're brilliant. Thank you so much for
1: joining us on Magic Book Club podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: Now on the Magic Book Club podcast, what fun we're going to have? RT or or maybe like. There we are. That's my Twitter chat. We are joined by the Twitter genius. He's not bad at songwriting as well. It's the very wonderful James Blunt. It's the first time we've done a video called for Magic Book Club because we just wanted to see James Blunt's house. James, come on. (laughs) Come on.
2: Well, I mean, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying the access to yours as well. You've got, you know, more books than, than I
0: have. We'll get on to the book in a sec. This is, of course, the Book Club podcast. But have you been doing much songwriting while you've been in lockdown?
2: Well, um, I have a little bit along the way, but really, I, I guess I was a little bit embittered by the fact that, you know, the, the government obviously chose to introduce this virus purely to stop me doing live music around the world yeah. um, to halt... Um, me performing live, and, and you can, you know, they could do that, but my, mm. my payback from that would be to um, find a way to still get <laughs> stuff out, and, and that's why I thought I put a book out.
0: Yes, he's so producing, James book. Blunt is still producing, uh, and you produced this fantastic tome, uh, James Blunt How to Be a Complete and Utter Blunt. It's already in the canon, they're going to be doing this at GCSE English.
2: <laughs> I doubt it. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's uh, as I've kind of said publicly before, the book's really only good for reading when you're on the loo. <laughs> um and uh and and i know there's been some panic buying going on in the uk at the moment too and, and if you missed out on Lou roll <laughs> then that's another reason why
0: you should get the book i have not used that th- this for that yet just to be absolutely clear just to be absolutely clear i loved it yes, I think so, so, yeah it's, it's it's hilarious james the way that you've taken on this new i'm gonna i'm gonna say meta career as a as a tweet satirist maybe like there's a load of people for example my friend shappy i was tweeting about this yesterday uh, said, didn't really like his music. Then I started reading his tweets. Now I love his music. Like you on Twitter, you've introduced a whole new load of people to your music as well.
2: Yeah. Isn't that strange how people's opinion on the music should change um, because of the perception of the person? Yes. Um, and maybe that's the problem with marketing in the first place. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I suppose what I have enjoyed, at least with the invention of Twitter, is it gave me a voice to reply because, you know, pre- previously, whenever I was putting music out, I would have to go through... Journalists to do interviews whenever I read the article back they never said it the way I said something They, they never put the ha-ha after any joke yeah. that made me be a very earnest person So I love the fact that the Twitter at least gave me gave me a voice to respond.
0: Yeah, absolutely And your your opening words of the book uh, Twitter is awful, which is the most important context you need for the whole thing. Definitely
2: and it is um, because people are so incredibly unkind to each other um, on Twitter. It's remarkable how we suddenly forget ourselves or, you know, any sense of being polite or kind, compassionate to others. We seem to lose that. I and mean, when we um, are, are, are on our phones tapping away on Twitter and, um, and so, and so, yeah. Uh, so in that knowledge being f- almost forced to go onto Twitter because of my record label wanted to me to, then, um, then thought, okay, what a bizarre and an ugly place it is. I think I found myself just laughing that I should have to be on it. Laughing at myself, looking at people's comments when, when, I'm, when I'm really lucky, I'm touring the world and thousands of people are turning up to concerts and millions of people are buying the albums. And, and why, would I, why would I ever dream of looking at, you know, the one or two negatives online? Um, uh, and so that's why I think I found myself um, responding in that way, just laughing at the madness of it all.
0: Yes, and we need that at the moment because Twitter—it's felt in recent history uh, that Twitter has sort of taken over the world. Social media has taken over the world, and to break that spell, you've got to not care.
2: Absolutely, and it's not the real world. Twitter's not the real world. So social media, you know, nothing on Instagram is reflects people's real lives. It's their curated lives of how they want to be perceived and all those smiles, the moment that camera's gone, they probably haven't got that smile on their face um, in the same way. And, and, and therefore there's nothing to be envious of. Um, and, and yeah, what you, and a Twitter storm, you know, I, I've I was in a newspaper once about a Twitter storm over something I'd said, and literally there was one person writing aggressively about it in response to what I'd said over and over again. That's one person. That's not a Twitter storm. And it's mm-hmm. there's no such thing as a Twitter storm. Yeah. Um, there's the real world, and then there's this tiny little thing, you know, called social media, which is just um, which yeah, which is a microcosm of
0: madness. It's really great when you, when you pop that bubble. You know, when you see it in newspapers, outrage was growing last night. Who, what outrage was growing last night? Who? What, do you know, it's always this nebulous idea, isn't it? And yeah. You see that yeah. when you look on Twitter. It's nonsense.
2: Yeah, totally. And again, you know, I, and I feel it's a strange thing to, to do. I, I mean, in many ways, what I do is quite disrespectful to the, the thousands of people who queue up for <laughs> tickets um, and, and, and turn up for these shows. And, and yet one can focus on online. And, and that's why my book really is... It really does. I'm trying to spell out that, you know, yeah, I do this reluctantly, but I really, really recommend the real world is a much better place.
0: Yeah. And also, this is quite a good way of, um, uh, of detoxing, you know, put your phone off, get on to James Blunt I had to be a complete and blunt. And, and, you know, I'm not going to lie to you, James. I read this while my kids were in the bath, So this is about a, 15, a 12 minute read, I'd say.
2: Well, you're a speed reader because you're a professional. Um, for me I think it took me about (laughs) five concentrated hours Um, but but I'm a detailed person I'm a detailed person and maybe you're (laughs) you're just more of a
0: feelings person the good the good sign this is the best review you could possibly get on I would on several occasions during the kids bath I was sitting outside reading it on several occasions both my boys said daddy what what are you laughing at so I was like, there you go that's a good review, right?" Yeah. Um,
2: well, as yeah, well, I'm very glad. And you're close to being on the loo. There, if you're both with the children, you're you know you're you're either on the floor or you're on the loo. So you're almost reading it in, in perfect conditions.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so, what do you do when you want to? Um, you, you know, you seem to have social media under control. What do you do to for downtime? What do you do to detox from from the madness of your of your career? Because it is idyllic. And you know, let's make no mistakes. You're in a there You will be touring the world as and when the world gets back to normal. But how do you, how do you switch that off? What does James Blunt do to relax?
2: Um, well, I hope pretty much the same thing as almost um, everyone's done through lockdown. You know, sat in a house and wished that the DIY shops were open so that I could <laughs> fix things that were broken that I've been meaning to fix for um, 15 years since I've owned this house. So yeah, I spent lockdown with a saw, um, clearing a forest of deadwood because we have forest fires out here, and uh, and I for 15 years I've allowed that uh, deadwood to accumulate, and I thought if i've got 6 months locked in my house with my mother in law then i'm going to get out there in, in the forest and uh either is either clean the forest of deadwood or dig a shallow grave um and uh and, uh, and right now in lockdown 2.0, uh, um, I've got uh, builders in and, uh, and I'm doing gentle renovations to a house that, um, that I should have done many years ago.
0: Right. Should we worry if your mother-in-law, if you're getting a patio right now?
2: Exactly. She hasn't been seen for a couple of
0: weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and the, But the patio is fantastic so you, you, you're a married man how do you delve in when you're writing let's get back to your music when you're writing your songs you do write I know you don't want to hear this but you write beautiful beautiful often heartbreaking songs the one about your dad is just gorgeous I love that song um how do you do that with with love songs how do you dive into heartbreak and all that sort of stuff if you're if you're in a happy place how do you dive into the sad place to make the beautiful music
2: um you're uh, easy just go and start an argument in the morning um uh, <laughs> over breakfast and by lunchtime you'll have a, you'll have a cash in with a song um I think uh, you know, I started out with an album called Back to Bedlam, um, with um a heavy song on it called Goodbye My Lover and, and that's entirely, you know, genuine. Um, real they're all the real life experiences in, in those songs um and And then, as I put out subsequent albums, you know they're, they're still very deeply touching songs on there on those albums that I think are, you know are genuine and heartfelt as a single man um and you know carry you home is is a bit desperate um dealing with someone with addiction or same mistake is my own issues as a as a person who just you know makes the same mistake time and time again. But yeah, as you then become a married man, where do you go from that? Well, um, occasionally I've tried to delve back into history and write songs um, that I felt, um, you know, uh, that I drawing upon the past, but I don't think those have ever really worked, especially well. And instead, I think writing about the truth and how you genuinely feel um, and and exposing yourself is what people know is real and then they connect with as well. And I have written deeply moving songs about my relationships. Um, you know, with my family, my wife, my children, my father. Because they're true, uh, and I life is not easy as a touring musician. I get up and I and I walk out of the door, and I'm away. For, you know, for a year. I went for a year um, uh, last time, and uh, you know, pop back for a, a couple of days here or there. But that um, can lead to you know extreme uh, strain on someone who's left to pick up the pieces of that. A, a song of mine called "Cold" um, is exactly that, um, and about the distance between um, between us, the physical distance um, of me being on a, in America her being in, in the UK and, and dealing with a family, um, but obviously the distance that it has emotionally
0: as well. Yeah. Do they get out to see you or is that sometimes harder if they appear for two days and disappear again?
2: Um, it's very hard with very small children to be able to do that from for any great distance. Um, you know, we, we mix and match as best as we can, but um, but definitely not easy for the person who's left behind. While I'm swanning around the world <laughs> with a band and a crew, having an amazing time, um, doing what we love, chasing a, you know, chasing a dream and uh, and having a blast. Uh, I, yeah, I do feel guilt about the people I've left
0: behind. Yeah. When you, when I heard I was interviewing you for the book club, I was genuinely like, oh, right. Okay. So this is going to be about his life. This is going to be about obviously when you're in the army and all that sort of stuff. Is there a book, is there a, is there a, a non-comedy book or is there a more long form book in you? Uh, uh, definitely actually.
2: Um, I've just, my, um, publisher, you know, this is my first book that's out now. Um, and, uh, and really, as I say, it's, it's, been, it's been great fun to put together, but it's been putting together, um, you know, bit, bits and bobs from over the years that I've collated to make this diary. Um, a long form would be very different, but yeah, I think, um, I think along the way, just because I've had some really funny, mad experiences, I'm um, uh, very fortunate to do that, you know, from living with someone like Carrie Fisher um, through every recording process of every album means that, you know, through that house walks so many weird and wonderful people that every day. Was a little um, was a dinner party story that would be would be fun to put in a book.
0: Oh come on, give us the what's the headline one? You're you're pitching it to your publishers. What is the headline story? I'm, at,
2: I'm, not, I'm not. I'm saving it for the book. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> oh, come on,
0: man! You're too good at this game. You're too good at this game.
2: But there, you know, but there's some good there are good moments. Carefish was an amazing human being, and her, her mum Debbie Reynolds lived on the property with her. Um, her mum's famous from Singing in the Rain. Yes um so uh so yeah living and they they died a day day apart from each other and Mm. carrie carrie would always say that her mum would um would um try and jump in on her you know jump in on her her act um and they died within a a day of each other um which uh which is i
0: guess was carrie was true they went there then had a joint funeral yeah (laughs) what was how did this come about how did the carrie fisher thing happen explain it to our to our listeners
2: remarkably i met her in a restaurant in london um and uh at lunch or something and through, through mutual friends. And she asked me what I was doing. I, and I said, I've just left the army. I've got a record deal. I'm moving to Los Angeles to record my first album. And she said, um, where are you going to live? And I said, I, I don't have a, a home yet. And she said, well, then, you know, you're going to live with me. And, uh, and I did, and she, uh, you know, became my American mother in many ways. Um, my closest confidant in uh, in everything, godmother to my child, which um, is an incredibly creative human being uh, and, and also a very delicate human being too. Lots of people talk about her strength for being so open with her own addictions, but actually she was a very fragile person. She wrote, um, uh, you know, "Postcards from the Edge" is her probably most famous, book, but "Wishful Drinking" and, and a ton of other um, books. You know, that words were her words were her weapon um, and her passion. Um, you know, the, my greatest present she, she's given me is a massive dictionary. Um, and uh, and she, yeah, she's a prolific writer.
0: She would love but what you're doing. I, on
2: this book that I put out is dedicated to her.
0: Yes, yes, I spotted that. I spotted that and I didn't know anything about the Carrie Fisher thing and now I'm like, oh, astonishing, astonishing. Uh, Have a great day, James. Thanks for for doing this. It's brilliant to see you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Now, I'm sure you've been diving back into your favourite novels over the past few months. In fact, if you look at a lot of the top tens uh, in terms of book sales recently, it's people rediscovering classics. It's a comfort thing, I think, during lockdown, during this strange year. We've all been drawn back to those books that we love. Uh, I, myself, have tried to get back into some Sebastian folks. Uh, I absolutely love him. I was reading Birdsong again. It just, it's, it's a comforting thing, even though it's a very uh, often traumatic book. There's still a comfort to it. Ever wondered what inspires the authors behind your favourites? Well, we found out. We asked Victoria Hazlop what kind of music she listens to when writing.
3: I always listen to Greek classical music when I'm writing, and there's plenty of it. Um, Some by Manos Hatsidaikis, who wrote the film Music for Never on Sunday, and Theodorakis, who famously wrote the music for Zorba the Greek, and many others. Um, but I like to keep words out of my ears when I'm writing. Always a coffee has to happen first, ideally flat white. I'll make do with a cappuccino if flat white isn't available. So where did I write those for love? Well, in two places. Um, Partly in the London Library, which is a haven of peace and tranquility right in the heart of London, close to Piccadilly and when I'm in London I go there most days to do my writing. And the other half of the time I spent in Athens where most of the book is set and I found that very inspirational. The most interesting place that I went to during research was Mykonisos, which is a very arid island just off the coast, quite near Athens, um, which was a prison camp for uh, communists during the Civil War, during and after the Civil War. Um, And the most interesting person who helped me with research was an elderly man who'd actually been a prisoner there during that time. Um, And his uh, memories were very moving and also very tough to listen to. Who do I let read my drafts? Um, My daughter is always the first these days. um, a very talented editor, but also a critic, and she's very unafraid of telling me about things that she thinks just doesn't work. I don't take all her comments in, but most of them I do, and I find that she's an invaluable part of my process
0: that's it that's all we've got time for this week on the magic book club podcast do join us next time for more of your favorite authors and stories more of the authors and stories you love oh, there we are. there's our strap line sorted and in the meantime of course we-